0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the LitBreaker Ad Network. LitBreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web, with breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers, it's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker Breaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, Or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent bookish people? Look no further. LitBreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's LitBreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not
1: alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
0: And now here's your host, Bradley Steen. Just one person at just one time, right? Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two people trying to connect. This is a third person trying to feel connected. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I've got a good show for you today. I'm very excited about it. Aaron Gwynn is here. Aaron Gwyn. He's got a, a new novel out called Wins War. It's available from Eamon Dolan. Uh, An imprint of Houghton, Mifflin, Harcourt. Uh, Esquire Magazine hails him as one of America's best young writers. So he and I are going to be talking in just a little bit. Uh, As for me, I don't have very much to say today. I'll be really honest with you, just because that's been my tendency on this show. And uh, I've talked about this on this show. Uh, My wife and I just had another miscarriage. So that's what's going on. I don't feel like sitting here doing a monologue and, uh, pretending otherwise. I hope you can understand that. I'm not going to play piano music. <laughs> I'm not going to, uh, dwell. I don't want to spoil the party or spoil, uh, Aaron's episode, but if you hear it in my voice, if you're wondering why I'm being short today in the monologue, it's been a shit week for me and for us. And uh, that's four in a year. And, that's too much. So, uh, let's just do the show. Let's just do the conversation. This conversation, uh, thankfully happened before all of this went down. So it's not, uh, it's not weighted by any of it. And Aaron uh, was really great to talk to. So let's get to the show and, uh, let's get me out of the way so I can go like uh, punch the wall. I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel like punching things. I'm not actually a puncher. I don't know how to handle this, you know, what do you do? You just sort of like grit your teeth and go through it. And then eventually, uh, you feel better. I do know that that's one of the things about going through this multiple times, but it's like, uh, how many times, how many, how many punches do I have to take? You know, do we have to take it's harder on my wife than it is on me. So, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Let's do the show. Uh, my guest today is Aaron Gwyn. His novel Winds War, uh, as I mentioned, is out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt uh, with the imprint is Eamon Dolan. So please be on the lookout, pick it up, uh, it's a terrific yarn. Uh, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, this is Aaron Gwynn and, uh, his novel one more time is called wind's war.
1: Out in the middle of nowhere, man. Um, we had a quarter of, um, you know what a section is a section of land.
0: I mean, only, only from the perspective of like an airplane looking down.
1: <laughs> okay. Right. So we had an entire one mile section. Um, everything but a quarter of that. So we had 360 acres. Uh, and then all my friends were farm boys who had, you know, who lived on ranches and everything. So, you know, we just did, we sort of did whatever we wanted, you know, uh, growing up, you know, we rode dirt bikes and three wheelers and hunted and fished and swam in the pond all summer. And Okay. So how early in your life were you armed? Uh, let's see. I remember the first time I shot a pistol I was five. Okay,
0: <laughs> that's young. So with
1: my, yeah, it was yeah, it was young. I can remember I was uh, with my granddad and his father, and we were out shooting, and he, I I I mean I was so young I wasn't even strong enough to like hold the pistol up. Yeah. So he would he would be he was covering my ears with his hands, and then alternately like reaching down and um like raising my hands up from underneath because I was you know dropping the pistol that's got to just seem insane to, yeah. <laughs> well, to folks in cities and everything i mean i i recognize that so
0: but i mean that's what i was going to ask you about because i'm somebody who's like terrified of guns i don't understand right. you know i don't get it I I, right. I I shot one when i was in high school right uh, like we went to a, a shooting range with my friend who had like his grandfather's world war ii rifle and like it just always scared the shit out of me and then i, I shot, <laughs> I shot a, a pistol in college like you know, in a canyon in Colorado, like right. it was just like a random thing. Somebody had a gun, but, um, it never got into it. But like, I mean, it, it, when you're out living out in like ranch, uh, on like a giant ranch in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma, you know, that culture,
1: people are into guns. They're like, very much into it. You know, we hunted and fish. We weren't, we weren't the biggest hunters, my family. We did it and, uh, you know, we would deer hunt squirrel hunt, rabbit hunt and all that. But you know, we ate what we killed. But I mean, I had friends that that's, I mean, they lived for it. Uh, My best bud back in Oklahoma, that's that's he completely structures his life around being able to go out and hunt. I mean, and they hunt everything. What's
0: the joy? Like what? But like this is where I always wonder because like I I have a cousin who
1: uh,
0: lives down in Alabama and like loves to hunt. Like we'll get his crossbow out or his you know he loves to just go sit in a deer stand and like kill deer and like I. Uh, I'm a vegetarian
1: (laughs) right? (laughs) who would start crying if I had to kill a deer. I don't get it. Right. See, it was never, for me, it was never a joyful thing. I never got into it like that. It was just something we did. I I much preferred going out and, like, practice when I was a kid and, you know, shooting at cans and that that sort of stuff. Um, And so, like, you know, getting up at in the morning and sitting in a fucking deer stand it <laughs> sounds horrible it was it's, i mean I thought it was, thought it was just boring yeah. um, so i it was never for me what it is for my buddy clint uh, he but and he doesn 't just go sit in a deer stand like he goes on these stalks and like you know he 's constant like he 'll go to these uh, on these hunts and like New Mexico and climb up the side of a mountain and all this shit to get an elk and so, I mean, he's into it, uh, into it uh, for the adventure of it all. He is in with some guys in uh, southern Kansas out in the middle of nowhere, and they hunt coyotes with greyhounds from the back of pickups. Jeez,
0: what the, what, I don't even know what that means. So you, what, you, send, okay. you send a greyhound out to track the coyotes?
1: Okay. It's, it's, it's more extreme than that, right? So they have got all these, like, pickups and everything, right, that they've totally road-warriored out. And they will, and so they're out just on like the prairie and they will be running these trucks like 40, 50 miles an hour. And they have these uh, like dog boxes in the beds of their trucks with greyhounds, right? And so the greyhounds are in the beds of the trucks and they have latches. And so they'll like, uh, a rope will run from the latch up into the cab and they'll cut, they'll, they'll you know get a pack of coyotes, start to cut them off. And when they get alongside them, They'll pull the rope. The dogs will come out of the back end of of the like pickup and just like go for these coyotes. And they train them these greyhounds so well that like they have one dog that that's the tackler. They have another dog that's like the throat dog. I mean, it's so freaking specific. And the, <laughs> I know. And they and it's all they do. They like you know they have their jobs and everything kind of worked out so that they can they can go coyote hunting that weekend yeah
0: i you know i i guess to each their own it just seems, it seems like such a a gloomy thing to do like let's go kill some animals <laughs> but uh, I, right right but you know i guess like this i mean this is a thing too like you, i have to give i have to allow for like uh difference of perspective and difference of experience because i you know i didn't grow up on a ranch when you're growing up on a ranch and you're actually immersed in um, that life, and you're around animals all the time. Like, you, you know, like, what was that like? You, you know, you, you work, I'm assuming you were helping to work and, uh, oh, yeah, work the land. Is that how you say it? Or, you know, work the work. cattle?
1: Yeah. I was, when, by the time I got to be about 11 or 12, we had gotten these Brahma cattle, and Brahma are show cattle. So you're, you know, they're just big pets. You know, you don't, I don't think anyone eats Brahma cattle and, unless they're, I don't know. They're really expensive cows. Anyway, so our, our ranch was called the Crosswire Ranch. You know, we had our brand and all that kind of stuff. And we were trying to build a reputation as a ranch. And so my job was to, like, work with a calf over the course of the season, then take her to the county fair, show her and try to win, you know, a prize uh, and, you know, gain some kind of acclaim for a ranch and all that kind of stuff. That was the big plan. I was, uh, I was small for my age. And so like the calves were always, you know, had several hundred pounds on me and they jerked me around and everything. So it was like at the time, uh, it was kind of murder for me.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was just like, you know, there are parts of it. I really liked and parts of her like, Oh, great. You know, I got to get up at six o'clock and feed the cows. I gotta, I gotta go water my calf. I gotta, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it shores. But then a lot of it was just like, you know, play. Um, and the, and I don't know, we spent a lot of time outdoors. You have siblings? I don't. I, I'm an only child. Okay, okay. So you're an
0: only child on this what, right. three, like almost 400 acre piece of property. Right. You got buddies, your parents like pretty, I mean, your parents have to be pretty lenient uh, when you're, I mean, what, what 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 kind of trouble can you really get into? I guess you could like wreck your three-wheeler or whatever, but
1: Yeah, that's the thing, right? So, like, uh, I was raised by my grandparents, and they were very... Wait, you said
0: your grandparents raised
1: you? Yes. So where were your folks? My father was killed when I was 18 months old. Oh, God, I'm sorry. What happened? He was run over by a train in Tulsa, Oklahoma.
0: Holy shit, okay. Yeah.
1: Um, His pickup stalled on the tracks the Frisco Railroad, and uh, he had... Um, borrowed a pickup because he was helping some friends move, and uh, the pickup got stalled, and then the what are they, what do they call the little barriers came down, so he was with a friend right and so they started joking around like you know our luck there 'll be a train come along and like in a little while the barriers came down, and there was a train coming, but it was like hundreds of yards away right so the pickup wouldn 't start and the pickup would was with my dad, finally said, Mark, like, we're going to have to get out of this pickup. That train's going to hit us. And my dad's like, no, I can get it off the tracks. So I can totally get it off the tracks. Like, I'm not going to, like, go to my buddy and tell him I, you know, got his, got his pickup run over by a train. So eventually the, the guy in the – the guy's name was Bill. Bill, like, got out and walked away and screamed at my dad from the side of the pickup – the side of the train tracks until the train hit him and killed him.
0: Oh my God! You so see, your dad just wasn't going to abandon that truck. No, nope. Shit! Because I was going to say, it's like you know, you hear about things like that happening, and it seems like well, you know, trains move fast, but you can see you can see them coming, you can hear them.
1: Oh yeah, oh no, they they I mean they watched it from you know a long ways away, and he just wouldn't let go. He wouldn't let go of it.
0: That's I mean that seems pretty bullheaded.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have done the same thing though. Are oh, you have that same trait? Very much so. I didn't realize it about myself until I became an adult. You know, I always wondered, you know, why would you sit there and let a train hit you? But uh, I would do that. I, I think I would. You never know what you'd do until you're in the situation. But when I think about the shame of going to your best buddy, right, and saying, "Yeah, I, I just got your, I got your pickup flattened by a train."
0: Right. I can, yeah, I can sort of see that. Shame can, be, shame
1: can be a powerful motivator.
0: You know, like just sort of like the fear. Oh man fear of shame or embarrassment or doing something like super, you know, super dumb. It's Uh, huge. And I think getting your friend's truck flattened by a train would, would qualify.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, my mother, so she's a widow at 22, 23. And that really sort of fractures her life. Uh, And so I. To live with my grandparents when I was a toddler and, and ended up just staying. So that was her. That was her parents. Okay. And so, yeah. This, so I, that's, did you have a yeah. relationship with her growing up? Often on, really vexed. You know, like she, she never really recovered from from all of that with my father.
0: Yeah, you know, well, that's I mean. I mean, that's 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 a tough blow, and she was young too. I mean, mothers back She's in those very days very young. My mom had my, my sister when she was like 22. I think about myself right. at 22, and it seems mind-blowing. Like, what in the world? Oh what, were, what were people doing having kids at I that I can't
1: age? imagine. Dude, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I mean, I was not, I was not prepared to, to be in the, like, you know, boyfriend-girlfriend relationships I was in when I was, you know, 22, much less. Yeah. To you have know, had a kid, I can't imagine.
0: So do you have kids now?
1: I don't. You don't? I don't.
0: Okay. Married or anything, or just...
1: I was married, and now I'm not, and I have a girlfriend.
0: Okay, okay. So, yeah. Wow, so did you get along with your grandparents growing yeah, up? Yeah, they're great. They're great. They, okay,
1: so they stepped up to the plate. Oh, my gosh. I mean, like, as far as, you know, they were concerned, they were my parents. I mean, they were, Um, my mother was an only child, uh, and so, you know, my granddad never got to have a son until I came along, and then, you know he got to do all the stuff that he didn't get to do with my mom.
0: Right. And he's got this ranch. It's perfect. He's got like some, some, no, land. it's great. Totally.
1: That's totally. Ten. No wonder he had you out shooting a
0: gun at age five.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. And that's, that's what, that's what he and his, like, he and his brother, my, my granddad, uh, is, is ex military, he was 82nd airborne. His brother was a colonel in the air force and everything. And so it's kind of what they did. Like the guys got together, they shot pistols and that sort of thing. And, um, his big thing, actually, though, was uh, music. You know, playing. He'd play guitar in these different bands and that sort of thing. So he taught me to play when I was when I was a kid, and I kind of grew up around that too. So that's kind of different, sort of.
0: Wow. So, are you musical today? I mean, like, are, did you did you did you take to it easily?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't take to it. I don't have a natural ability for it, but I won't. I wouldn't give up on it, and so, um. I stayed with it. And I I I can play and I used to be in bands and everything like when I was in my 20s but
0: uh, I've talked to a lot of riders who I mean not a, not a ton but there're a good right. hand, good, hand, good handful of riders who were in bands in their 20s.
1: <laughs> yeah. Now the thing for me man is like it never came naturally. Like I could work and work and work at it and get to where I was technically proficient but I had no ear And, um, it was all uphill, you know, it was just something I did because, you know, I like, you know, I love music. I, you know, I liked being around women who like musicians and all that kind of stuff. Sure. But, but there was no, there was no innate ability.
0: Could you read music? Cause I mean, how are you? (sighs) No, no. Just like sitting there practicing and whatever. I, I don't even know how you do it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, you know, you know, my my granddad would show like a lot of people in my family could play. Actually, my granddad would show me certain things, and then my aunt Teresa was very good, and she taught me like she's, Zeppelin songs and all that you, kind of stuff. You just cut out she what? Oh, she's uh, she taught me a bunch of stuff. She's the one who like started teaching me Led Zeppelin songs and all that kind of stuff.
0: Okay, yeah, that's good. It's good to have a an aunt like that. Totally. So, okay, and so, like, growing up on this ranch, uh, you know, uh, and I know Oklahoma is, like, Tornado Alley. So, like, were there spectac- right. were, like was there spectacular weather events or, like, always fear of getting obliterated by a tornado? That seems like something I would be thinking about if I were you. We,
1: yeah, we had two – so, we had a storm cellar outside, right? Um, and then we had a garage built onto the house. And so, we had a storm cellar in the garage so we didn't have to go outside to get to the cellar. So, we had – we were covered, Um but we never had a tornado hit the ranch. I mean, we had tornadoes like like around the, around us all the time in the summer and during see, the
0: season. Have you, you, you seen like a twist or touchdown like out across Packs. the field?
1: I have. I've seen one. Um, I've seen a very large one that was so large it sort of obscured the sky when I was a kid. And then I saw one in Louisiana when I was a little older that was more kind of like classic funnel come down touch and go back up
0: jesus yeah i remember when i was a kid um in the midwest that that, the tornado siren you know would go off in our town and that scared the shit out of
1: me (laughs) they're scary man yeah they're no joke they're no joke but
0: um okay so you uh you know i guess like in the in the middle of all this like the like the ranching childhood running around outside Right uh, firing weapons <laughs> right and uh and playing music, like when did you start to you, you know were your, your grandparents or your aunt were they feeding you books no
1: no i i I didn't really do well in school i I hated sitting still um I hated to read, I never gave writing a thought um and so I was kind of never exposed to it, and then. Uh, I did so poorly in high school that I had to go to a community college in order to, well, I, I didn't plan on going to re- uh, like a four-year school. I just happened to go to community college. And my first semester I had a freshman comp teacher and the first thing I handed in to him, um, when I got it back, he'd written just pages of stuff and he said, uh, you know, you're going to, you're going to make a living one day as a writer. I mean, he might as well have told me I could fly. I, but, you know, f- from whatever I had written, I mean, he said, you've got a you've got a real gift. Um, and so I was f- more flattered than anything else. No one had really encouraged that in me.
0: Did you have any inkling of it before then? No. Nothing. Were you, were no. you, were you like a movie freak or TV watcher? Mm, I mean Or was there like, a, I, was there like a, an oral storytelling well, tradition? I mean, very
1: much an, there was very much the oral thing my, my grandmother was one of nine children and so like I was constantly around her brothers and sisters, my great aunts and uncles and they were, they were all storytellers um, so if it, if it is passed down from something that's where it comes from Um, but yeah, so anyway, so he, uh, the, uh, my comp teacher had me come see him in his office and what the
0: fuck did you write? (laughs)
1: What was this? I know it was just like a personal, it was just like one of those, like, you know, standard like personal essays, you know, I can't remember what it was about, you know, it was just, but, uh, he like explained to me what I had done. um, and then he said, I'm not going to have you do the rest of the essays that the class is doing. I just want you to write for me. So I just started writing whatever for him, and he would give me feedback and then give me books. So he would give me – I think the first thing he gave me was uh, The Stranger, right? And so my interactions with him uh, you know, caused me to be a voracious reader. and So I just started – at that point, I started gobbling stuff up.
0: That's, you know, it's like, I can't tell you how many times I've had that exact scenario in some form, uh, be described to me where there's a teacher who told, uh, a writer to be that they could write. It's amazing right. how how important a teacher telling you that you're good at something is when you're, when you're a student.
1: It's kind of amazing. You know, I like when I was in grad school, uh, I taught comp and, uh, you know, I was around grad students who were really cynical about it. You know, and they couldn't believe they had to teach composition, all this kind of stuff. But for me, it had been such a conversion experience that uh, there was no way I could be cynical about it. I was like, "Holy crap!" I mean, this. If if I hadn't met Robert Hill, I mean, ugh, I don't know where I'd be right now.
0: I mean, like, and at that point in your life, I mean, if you weren't, if you were kind of like a, a shitty student and you weren't. Right. focused on school and then you're at community college, you must've been searching for like something like, what am I going to do? Like, did you have any thought other than like, like prior to meeting Robert Hill and prior to right. getting this great right. feedback, were you thinking like, Oh, I'm just going to get a two year degree and then go back and run the ranch. Or were you, what were you thinking?
1: I was thinking, well, I was hoping to be a rock star. right? Oh, I was right. hoping yeah. you know, that I was going to be, you know, the next Eddie Van Halen, but that was, <clears throat> there was already an Eddie Van Halen. Um, and I wasn't, uh, making any progress in terms of like originality or ingenuity uh with that. And so I think that <laughs> I think if my whole Eddie Van Halen plan uh fell through I was going to join the army. I think that was pretty much going to be my path. But things took a turn.
0: Things took Robert Hill. Robert Hill yeah. I mean, and God knows, like how old, how old are you? Like if you don't mind me asking, cause that would have like, you could
1: now? Have been... Oh yeah. yeah. I'm 41.
0: Okay. So you, but I mean, had you joined the military, you could have uh, feasibly been sent off to battle. You could have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we, uh, were in the Gulf war, I think the next, the, yeah, the next year.
0: Right. So there you go. So that to totally changed your life. So, yeah. Um, so you start to read, you, you, you have this innate kind of, uh, feel for narrative and storytelling and, uh, um, mm-hmm. You know, if you were a bad student in high school, it could did the English classes come easy at least? I mean, did you have technical proficiency in terms of uh, grammar and usage?
1: I mean, I could, I could read well. Uh, I could always read well. I could write well. Um, I would get in trouble because I couldn't diagram sentences. I couldn't tell you what the predicate was, right? And so the whole, like, the nomenclature completely escaped me. And f- so for me, English was the place where you diagrammed your sentences. English wasn't the place where... You told stories, talked about character and all that kind of thing. Yeah.
0: Like so, and what kind of school did you go to if you were living out in the middle of nowhere? It's
1: a little country school, uh, Varnum Elementary and Varnum High School, which is, I mean, it's kind of great in a lot of ways. Um, and I don't know that, that there are those little schools like this anymore, but uh, a good percentage of the faculty were Native American. A good percentage of the students were Native American.
0: Did you ride a, uh, did you ride a horse to school? <laughs> it's a fair question
1: i mean i should totally play that right yeah i rode a horse to school i saddled duncan in the morning rode out before the
0: and like i mean how good are you on yeah. a horse? are you pretty good on a horse uh, no i'm terrible you are yeah <laughs> I've, dumb, r- I've ridden writer. i've ridden a horse a few times and uh, it's a little scary i mean you gotta yeah, know, you gotta know what you're doing i was in uh, i was in cuba years ago Right. Um, I went down there through Mexico just to check it out, and you know it's the whole like forbidden island or whatever. And uh, we went like we were at this hotel in the middle of this national park, and you know it's, it's the one hotel. And right. horseback riding was like an option, and it was cheap. Right. And we were like, yeah, let's go for a horseback ride through this park. Well, the guy is like this like leathery Cuban cowboy dude shows up with like six like bony horses. <laughs> And, and I mean, like, just there's no waiver, you know, like nothing. You know, you just get on a horse, and this <laughs> this guy takes us out into the park and starts whipping these horses in the ass. And oh my god, like, takes off at a full gallop. And I mean, I am up in the stirrups, like holding on for dear life. Yeah, like, dear, of course. I mean, I I don't know anything about horses. I mean, literally, it, it, it might as well have been my first time ever. And I was at a full gallop, like just tearing through this national park.
1: <laughs> it's it it, it
0: amazing. I'm Lucky to be alive.
1: You forget. I mean, you don't realize how high up. Yes. A horse actually is until you're, you know, astride one, and then you're like, you know what? If I were to just like fall off a a wall that was this high, it yes. would suck. But this, you know, now I'm on an animal that weighs, you know, half a ton or a, or two tons, and you know, it's,
0: mo- it's moving at like what? I don't even know. Thirty miles. Thirty
1: an hour. miles an hour. <laughs> Thirty-five miles an hour. Right or yeah. could. Yeah.
0: So, um but you you didn't like I mean was that something you were expected to know?
1: I don't think. I mean, we we had horses because my granddad thought of himself as a cowboy and we had a ranch and so you know, our thing was cattle, but, you know, well, we're not going to have a ranch without horses. So there yeah. were horses. Okay. It was kind of one of those deals.
0: And, and you know, what, those ranches, like like uh, I had a, a good friend in, in college whose dad owned a big uh, farm, like a big wheat farm, I think it was, right. out in uh, western Kansas. And, you know, f- like ranching and farming can be lucrative to have, like, those big, huge chunks of property and to be working, you know, at, at a, a, a big scale. Like, was it a good business or was it tough?
1: No, no, no. It was um, – my grandfather was a pipeliner by trade, right? So, so he, he was a union welder. So he would go off to Israel or he would go off to Turkey or he would go off to – wait, can you hear me?
0: Yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he'd go He'd go off and work these pipelining jobs and make a bunch of money and come home, sink it into the ranch, sink it into cattle, and then – you know, we'd, we'd nearly go bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like ranchers haven't made money in a long time. I mean, if you, if you have a very rare breed of cattle or if you like raise quarter horses and you're independently wealthy, I suppose you could make it pay. Or if you have like some subsidized farm where, you know, you grow whatever, but Um, you know, there's a reason why people drill oil wells out there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. And, but I mean, I guess like too, you weren't growing crops, like,
1: no, I think a lot
0: of the, I mean, and a lot of these farms and a lot of this land, if it's like, uh, what do you call it? Arable? What's
1: right. You know,
0: if it's arable and you can grow stuff on it, then the big factory farms and industrial, you know, corporations come in and buy them up. Right. Um, Okay, so let's get back to your let's get back to this timeline of you becoming a writer because this isn't this is a unique origin story. Okay, um, you read The Stranger. Like, what other books in those early days? Um, yeah, you're gonna, you're were gonna you, love this. Were you given like, and what really okay. what really split your head open?
1: Okay, so check this out. Right, so I read The Stranger. I go back to Robert Hill. I'm like, you know, give me something else. He gives me uh, a Death in the Family. Right. And so, I, and, I'm, and I also start taking one of his literature classes where we're reading, like, I don't know, masterpieces of American literature or something like that, kind of a survey sort of thing. And so, Robert had gone; he had gotten his PhD from University of Tulsa, Tulsa University, um, when Tulsa was this. I mean, what it was known for in terms of English was James Joyce studies. So, if you were, if you were like, you wanted to be a Joycean. You went to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and studied under Tom Staley at the University of Tulsa. They had this incredible library and all this kind of stuff, right? All these Joyce scholars, Margot Norris, and everything. So, uh, Robert would always talk about Ulysses. So, I'm 22, yeah, I'm 22. I've read, like, you know, a handful of American lit. Uh, I've read, you know, The Stranger, I, The Plague, The Fall. Um, I've read The Odyssey and Hamlet and, and a couple of other Shakespeare plays. And I'm like, I want to read Ulysses this summer. And he's like, all right. I was like, I, you know, I'm going to see what the big deal is about. You, you know, you're, you're always talking about it. And so I didn't realize how generous, I mean, I realize now how generous this is, right? So You know, this is not for pay or anything like that. He takes the summer and he puts together um, an 18, was it 18 weeks? Yeah, we did a chapter a week over the summer. That can't be right. No, that's right. Yeah, and we went chapter by chapter. And uh, I read Ulysses and I read like Weldon Thornton's Illusions in Ulysses. And we kind of had like a little seminar over the course of summer. Yeah. This dude's a saint. He is actually, man. That's he really was, cool. He's he's incredibly cool. He's incredibly cool.
0: You better have thanked him in the acknowledgments.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean my in my first book, yeah, I think he's in there. I I give him credit for starting me off on all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh so yeah, by that time I'd read like a couple of Shakespeare plays, a few camo novels the Odyssey in like a prose translation and Ulysses.
0: (laughs) But I mean, you know, you might as well swing for the fences early and that's a good, that's a good foundation.
1: Well, and it's a weird thing, right? Joyce is one of those writers that can give you the illusion of an education, right? So just by having studied Ulysses, I mean, it's the same thing with like Thomas Pynchon or somebody like that, you know, really getting into gravity's rainbow over the summer, which by the way, we did the summer after we did Ulysses. It gives you, it gives you the illusion of having an education, not the education itself, but
0: no. Yeah. I I feel, I understand what you're saying. Like I haven't gotten like deep into those guys. I mean, I've read some of both, but I never, you know, I never did like an 18 week seminar. Uh, Right. I haven't gotten all the way through Ulysses, but like when I read, um, Gore Vidal, you know, you you can read him in bulk and be like, okay, I understand history now or American history. Right. Oh yeah. It definitely, definitely gives you that sense of scope. And if you feel like, He's done the work, you know? Right. Uh, and he's he's sort of laying it out on a platter for you.
1: And yeah, these encyclopedic kind of guys, right? You know, like Gore Vidal's like that, or someone like Shelby Foote, you know? Uh, I think Don DeLillo can have that kind of like... Yes.
0: Like, right. You, you just get the sense, like, okay, they've read everything.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, and digested it. Yes. Right?
0: <laughs> they read everything, and they understood it, and they remember it. Right. And, and they know how to, like, talk about it for me, but... Um, so did you go to Tulsa? Did you wind up? No, no. Okay. So wh- no. where do you, where do you go? You
1: leave so, this? Yeah. I go from this, uh, community college, uh, to a little state school in Ada, Oklahoma, East Central University, and got a bachelor's from there. And then I applied to, um, Oklahoma state, uh, to do a master's, just a straight lit master's and, it, when I was there, Brian Evanson was the fiction writer. Okay, um, And, you know, I fell in love with his work. I became friends with Brian. Um, I, do you know his, his work? Yeah, I mean, I'm familiar
0: with him, but, like, you know, not super. Uh,
1: he's, a, he, he's a really, I mean, he's a writer's writer. He does some, some of the most interesting and, like, sort of bold things of anyone out there in contemporary fiction. And I, re- I knew that he was special, and he was very generous, and I learned a ton from him. And the, yeah, the year after I graduated, or the year I graduated with uh, my master's, he got a job at the University of Denver uh, in their creative writing program, and they do a Ph.D. in creative writing. So uh, the year after I graduated, I followed him there and did um, a Ph.D. in creative writing.
0: Okay, so you got your doctorate. Yeah. And you lived in Denver. I I went to Boulder for undergrad, so I know that neck of the woods. Oh man, yeah, it's great. I love it. I loved oh, yeah. it. Denver's not a, Denver's a cool city, I think. It's an it's, it's an up, a great city. It's an up and comer. Yeah,
1: totally. I love it.
0: Um okay, so you got your PhD in creative writing. So like once you once you got bit by the bug, you were done. I was I was all in. Okay. And then over the course of what? Was this like a decade between community college and PhD?
1: Uh yeah. Yeah, right. That would have been I would have like started like community college when I was nineteen or twenty, and I f- finished my PhD when I was thirty.
0: Okay. So, and w- when did you? Uh, were you always you know at least when you started to read Ulysses at that point were you thinking I'm going to I'm going to write my own stuff or were you thinking I'm going to just make a you know make a life of studying literature and possibly teaching it and becoming a part of academia? Like, when did the writing thing uh, find its way into the equation?
1: Right. Yeah. Well, at first I thought, well, I mean, there was no one around to tell me how ridiculous, you know, these, these fantasies were. But I thought, oh, well, I'll just be a Joycean. I'll just be a Joyce scholar. And so uh, that was in my head. It was up in my head up until the time I went to Oklahoma State. And so, you know, I'd found Beckett. I, was re- I wrote my master's thesis on uh, one of Beckett's experimental novels. And so when I was studying for my master's comps, I started reading Faulkner uh, and, like, took a summer and read, like, all the big ones. I read um, As I Lay Dying, Sound of the Fury, Light in August, Absalom, Absalom, Go Down Moses. Uh, I think probably maybe The Unvanquished or something. And at that point, I thought, you know what? Like, I may suck. I may never get anywhere with it. But I can't, like, sit on the bleachers. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I got to try to be in the game. I can't just spectate.
0: And what about the music? Were you playing music through this time too?
1: No, no. I mean, I was, you know, always had a, always had a guitar around and, you know, I'd have a buddy, he'd come over and he'd bring his guitar and we'd kind of play a little bit, but I wasn't, okay. I wasn't playing gigs or anything like that anymore.
0: Right. So that was done.
1: That was done. So you
0: step, you step off the bleach, you get out of the bleachers, you walk down onto the field. Yeah. <laughs> to continue this metaphor and then more. Yeah.
1: Just getting, well, yeah i walk out and then i get a concussion right <laughs> it's <laughs> <You're> like right. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a, like i would talk about it with one of my buddies uh who was older than me about 10 years older and he was he taught um at the school where i got my undergrad and i had i had a fairly well developed sort of critical sensibility by then you know i'd read some really important and difficult books um You know, I'd worked on my, you know, my academic prose and all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, worked really hard as a student. But, you know, creatively, you know, I was an infant. And so, you know, my creative abilities had not had not grown or had not, you know, been fostered along with all this other stuff I was doing. Um, And so when I started writing fiction, of course, it was really bad. Um, But. And that guy, a guy's name's Mark Walling. Uh, the thing that Mark sort of brought to the table, he's a fantastic reader. And it's really, really difficult to find someone who can look at a piece of writing, a short story you've written, tell you what works and what doesn't work and why. It sounds like, well, those people ought to be all over the place, but they're not. Right. Um, and Mark has a really, really he's a good clear. Ed- he's a good editor. He's a good editor and he's got a great aesthetic. And he can talk just very and very plain, uh correct terms about okay, this is not working because of this. I mean, I mean, he, he understands the rhetoric of narrative and the rhetoric of a short story. And so because I'm a, as obsessive as I am, you know, I would work and work and work and write a short story and you know, I'd show it to like buddies there in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and you know, you always have this kind of crowd around you that are kind of yes men. They're like, "Oh, this is great, this is great," <laughs> right? Right. And I'd show it to Mark, and he's like, "No, it doesn't work, and then it doesn't work because of this, 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 and this." And so it would piss me off, of course, right? But after I would cool down, I would think he's right, and so then I would go to work on another one. You know, and I—I I got obsessed with the idea of just like, dear God, let me write one short story that works, just one that can stand up on its feet and just work from beginning to end.
0: And so, how did you get to that point? Like, when w- talk about the moment when you actually yeah. finally did it.
1: So okay, so I started doing that when I was at uh, Stillwater. I was at OSU, so I went to Denver, did my first year there in the PhD program, and I wrote. I wrote a, a really bad novel that I think I let one person read, and I was so embarrassed when – by his reaction when I realized you know, what it was doing compared to what I thought it was doing that I just – I trashed it. Um, but in the course of writing that, that, that horrible novel, I had learned all of these things. Uh, I didn't know that I was learning things, but I would learned all this stuff.
0: Like what? Just, I mean, can you, can
1: you. Just kind of built chops, right? You know, just like, you know, learned how to sort of, you know, pace dialogue, learned how to, you know, begin to put, you know, images together in such a way, you know, learn to, and just the, like the fundamental techniques of fiction, writing. You know, getting your character to stand up and walk across a room and go through the door, you know, convincingly or whatever. Right. So. Uh, I finished that novel and so, so I knew it wasn't working. And so I wrote a short story and finished it, sent it to Mark and expected him to say what he always said. All right, you know, this, this, and this is wrong with it. And he didn't say that this time. He said, this is, this is incredible. And this is really special. And it's special because of this, this, and this, but you need to tweak this. And so I, you know, did the revision, sent it back to him. He's like, yeah, man, this is, this is a real winner. And so,
0: okay, by the way, I think everyone listening wants to wants Mark's email address so they can sort. I know,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And so, I remember him saying, "This is." I he said, "I wish I could write this way. I wish I could do something like this, but I can't." And he's like, he was like, you know, this is really. Spe- I mean, he was doing like all the laudatory kind of stuff, and I was eating that up. But I said, "Explain it to me. Like, explain what I did. I mean." I had done it, but I didn't know what it was I had done.
0: So what had you done?
1: <laughs> what had I done? Um, well, I had I had uh, managed to have a, a character who, uh, you know, for Mark, to Mark at least, who was engaging, who had a, uh, a concern, who was in a state of conflict, and that conflict led to – I mean, it's cliche, but a conflict led to a climax that climax uh, led to a resolution and this character went from being one kind of person to another kind of person, you know, underwent a change. Um, It had, you know, there was unity of narrative, unity of, unity of theme, et cetera, et cetera. And so he kind of showed me how that was working in my own piece. And so he was like, you need to send it out. So I sent it out that got taken by a literary magazine and then that got selected by New Stories from the South. Um, and that's how I got in touch with the editor at Algonquin, Kathy Porres, who um, bought my first book, which is a story collection. There you go. So that's yeah.
0: that's I mean that's the route. You got published by a small journal or a small lit magazine, an editor at Algonquin. Uh, or no, then it got selected by the anthology and then an editor at Algonquin got in touch with you?
1: Right. See, yes
0: there's different, yeah. there's different ways to the mountaintop. Like you, I mean, I guess that sort of thing still happens. It can happen via the internet. It can happen, right. uh, you know, but that's sort of like a, a backdoor. Like you didn't even have an agent.
1: No. And then the agent, Nat Sobel is my agent. Nat read the story in the literary magazine and got in touch with me. And he was like, hey, I just read, you know, your short story. I really liked it. Um, do you have a novel? That's true. <laughs> I said yeah no I don't but I had this collection you know I've been working on and he was like all right he was like send me the collection I'll be in Denver in 2 weeks um for, what, for what AW no what was even uh, James Elroy is one of his clients and Elroy was doing a reading in Denver okay and so yeah so I signed with Nat when he came out and so that was like in August and he sold the collection to Algonquin in January of that next year.
0: And Algonquin's a good press to land with too.
1: That's like that's a it's a great, great publisher. Yeah. So and I had a great editor, Kathy Porries. This is fantastic.
0: Okay. So, and were you out uh, and you were still, you were still in your PhD program when all this went down?
1: Well, yes. Okay. It's my last year.
0: Okay. So that's good. That's good time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that was, the collection was my dissertation. And so Nat sold the collection uh, the semester before, I had to defend my dissertation, which makes the dissertation defense that that helps.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> <laughs> you just you just drop the finished hardcover book on their desk. Right. Right. So okay. So uh, then, did you? It was like a two book deal. Did you get straight to work on a novel, or were you...
1: yeah, he did a two. We did a two book deal, um, and the novel. And that just said, "All right, uh, do you have an idea for a novel?" I was like, "No," and he's like, "We'll get one," and so. I was like, okay, I want to write a novel about a traveling tattoo repairman. And he's like, all right, you know, give me a first chapter. So I wrote a first chapter. I wrote some kind of synopsis. And then Algonquin bought that on the basis of that first chapter. And so, yeah, this all happens. Like, all this stuff is happening within, like, three months' time, right? So, like, Nat does this two-book deal with Algonquin. I get my PhD, and I take this tenure-track job, uh, out here at the university of North Carolina, Charlotte. Right. And so the next, you know, I go from being a graduate student to being a professor that fall. Uh, and now like, you know, I have a collection coming out. Now I have to write a novel and, uh, and I was in trouble <laughs> at that point. Cause I had no idea how to write a novel. So what did you do? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I, I wrote a novel. I flailed, <laughs> but I wrote a novel. Um, that next year, uh, Dog on the Cross was a finalist for the like the New York Public Library Young Alliance Award and everything. And so,
0: what the story collection was
1: the story collection, right, right. And so, um, I had a draft of the novel. I'd written a draft of the novel. I sent it to my editor, and she said, "Oh, I think this is going to be a great book. You know, we got needs to some different stuff needs to happen." So I spent the next year doing some revision, and handed another draft in the next year. And she said, you know, it's not there. And at that point I completely panicked. And I
0: just, so, but I mean like in what, what form did that take? Like, you mean just like a
1: quiet control panic or like a a, a fetal panic? Yeah. Pretty fetal. (laughs) I mean, I just saw these, I saw my years stretching out into the future, right. Where like I, you know, I slave over novel. I handed in, the editor says not nah, not quite there you know just like I, I just saw myself in some sort of time loop uh for eternity and so I wrote another novel and uh Nat sold that to Norton and we used part of the advance to pay back Algonquin uh what they had already spent on ink and we bought out of the contract. So, okay, uh,
0: but okay, so the 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 novel you drafted twice for Algonquin didn't go. So then, it go right. So you, like you you dropped that one. You basically I dropped it. You I dropped, dropped it. and then how long did it take you to write this next novel?
1: It was like nine months. Okay, so this one came out of you wrote. That's pretty quick. Yeah, it was too quick. You think so? I know so. You it f- turned out not being good. Well, it was.
0: What do you mean? Like you just you didn't get the critical reception that you wanted.
1: Well, no. Uh, and like looking back on it, I, I mean, it's really, really flawed. Um, I rushed it. There, there were a lot of things that were wrong with it. Um, and I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have published it. It was a mistake.
0: Huh. That's, that's interesting to hear you say that. I, I have similar feelings about work that I've put up.
1: <laughs> you know, I mean, like, if you're honest with yourself, right? You, 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 I feel like if you're going to grow, if you're going to like, get better you have to be kind of brutal with yourself and say, you know what? I put this thing out into the world. Um, it doesn't live up to the, the standards that that I have for myself.
0: Right. Well, but it's, a, you know, but it's so hard to, some people probably liked it. Like I wrestle with like being too hard on myself and just like being proud of the fact that the thing got done in the first place. Cause that's an right. achievement,
1: You know, It is, it is, it is. Um, but when, when that book came out and I watched it drop into a black hole <laughs> right i was like all right aaron like there's no need to put a mediocre novel out into the world and it wasn't my intention to do that but i'm like you need to really take your time and you didn't feel
0: that way about the story collection you felt solid about the story collection
1: yeah totally no i i'm i mean i'm pr- i'm proud of the story collection right I, fe- I felt like i wrote a good book yeah um
0: it did what you, it did what you wanted it to do
1: i i think so, I, I believe so so, I, you know okay.
0: yeah so i want to talk to you because like the the issue of time because again you get into like this uh like i understand what you're saying where you don't want to rush things but right. there, there's also like that endless time continuum that you talked about where you can find yourself right. like spinning your wheels interminably in the, right in the in the search for like in the futile quest for perfection or whatever so right you, you know when you got to win's war and like you sat down to write did you have did you tell yourself okay Like I'm not finishing this for at least two years or, you know, how do you, how do you manage the time aspect and how do you get to the point where you feel like you've uh, done everything you could do to make
1: it great? That's a great question. I, you know, I think with, with the new novel and as soon as the first novel hit, like as soon as it was in bookstores, I was like, I've made a mistake before it was in bookstores. I was like, I've made a mistake, but I did you tell anyone (laughs) Were you just, yeah, you did. No, but you know, like the girlfriend, uh, the, the, the woman I was dating at the time, she, you know, was like, Oh, you're just being too hard on yourself and that sort of thing. And I was like, no, no, uh, it sucks. But with wind's war, I was really finding the story. I was really like down in the, the, Trenches with it, the entire time, and so I felt I felt a sense of what it would need in order to work, and 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 like I have the opposite sort of feeling about it as I had uh, than I had from the world beneath. I, I mean, I'm I'm proud of the book. I'm not saying it's like the greatest novel in the world or anything, but I you know it's 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 a piece of work that I'm proud of. I'm sure it's flawed, I'm sure it has problems and all that sort of thing. Um but you know, well, it's I,
0: a, it's a great conceit. I mean, like I, I feel like the the concept of the book where you're you're uh like I was reading a little bit about the origins of it and like like the way that you conceptualize it as like a collision between uh a war novel set in Afghanistan and a western, which right. Right. You like it, it's it's one of those things where when you like you never think of it and then you hear someone say it and you go, that's a fucking great idea because you know the war in Afghanistan. Uh, there is sort of like a wild west. Like that is an unt- untamed moonscape. Oh my place, gosh! You know, and people are on people are on horses and they're out in the middle right. of nowhere. And you know, it's not right. like you, you know, like you have like the you know the the European theater in World War II or the right. Pacific theater or like Vietnam. You know, it's obviously like a jungle uh, warfare right. environment. But uh, you know, the, then you have these uh, these wars in the Middle East and they're fought on terrain that. Uh, invites comparisons to like old spaghetti westerns almost.
1: Oh, man. And you think about it, right? I mean, so you got this rancher, big rancher, a lot of cattle. And then one day the bandits came and they burned down two of his bunk houses. And so then he formed a posse. And, you know, he said, you know, I want you to go bring down this bandit and do whatever you have to do. Right, I mean that's that's what we've been in as a country for the last ten years. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's just like it's
0: such it, a I mean such a relatively small number of people caused like an entire nation to lose its shit. That's basically
1: absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you know it's it's the classic thing of some horrific uh, catastrophe is visited on a people and how how do the people respond to that catastrophe without perpetuating the horror themselves right right it's a good question that's always the crux that's always the crux of it so, and it's it's hard
0: yeah well and so did you go, did you grow up uh a fan of westerns like how did you get in you know how did that part of Right, uh, you know, your stories uh, fabric get into you. You must have at least, or at least, maybe when you conceptualize it, did you say, I, "I better bone up and start like uh, watching a lot of these old westerns"?
1: Oh man, I I I grew up with that stuff. My grandfather and I, you know, John Wayne films and Clint Eastwood films, and like, I, I mean, I can remember watching like all of that stuff and, and loving it. You know, and as a little kid, you know, playing cowboys and all that kind of stuff, and so.
0: Yeah, I was going to I was going to say too, yeah. like uh, like not to cut in, but like you know, in, yeah. adi- in addition to being like a good high concept idea for a, a you know a, like a, a story for a, a long form narrative, it also mm-hmm. happens to kind of tie together uh disparate elements of your own biography in a really
1: absolutely, way. Uh, yeah, I think it does have this it does have a very personal kind of thing, Um and then when I begin to do all the, when I begin to do research, you know, when when special forces. Uh, first went into Afghanistan in the fall of 2001 they went in on horseback um, which is kind of incredible and US special forces still has a horse program in Afghanistan this day. they use they use horses for recon and all this kind of stuff and the and green berets will I mean they'll joke about it they'll they'll talk about being cowboys and all this kind of stuff gunfighters so we we
0: have like american soldiers in Afghanistan who that's what that's how they're getting around they're they're like rep- yes they're going incognito, essentially jumping on horses and um, taking off across like this vast landscape to hunt down Al Qaeda.
1: <laughs> I think it's I think it's I think it was that sexy in two thousand one. I think it's I think it's a little less uh, sexy in terms of what they do now. I think horses are reliable transport. They don't require you know you carry gasoline. They're quiet. They don't like you know hover up in the up in the air like a Blackhawk helicopter getting knocked out by an RPG or something like that, right? So they're low-tech, and there's a psychological effect, too, where, you know, um, the Afghan people, they use horses, they use they use mules. So to see a man on a horse is, you know, that speaks to them on a very, like, primal level, whereas, you know, a bunch of guys that look like you know, spacemen jumping out of a Humvee, I mean, that's a, that's more, that's more of a distant cultural thing. Right.
0: To say the least. I mean, that's the thing about it is that, uh, you know, Afghanistan, it's a tough place and it's, it's such a, it's like a throwback, uh, in terms of like the way that, uh, the society works. It seems like it's a throwback like hundreds of years. (laughs) Right. Are they, right. You know, and I, I speak from a very limited vantage point, but you know, it's certainly the the sense that I've gotten, and I, I feel like there's quite a gulf between uh, the way that they live and you know their culture and, and us right. coming in, and I don't think we necessarily uh, were properly prepared for what we were getting into.
1: I mean, how could you be? I mean, how could you be? Is <laughs> the question, right? I mean, it's like there's a great book, a nonfiction book by. Jason Elliott called an unexpected light. Uh, he's a British guy who like right before, I think right after he graduated from whatever is, whatever their version of high school is, uh, just decided to go to Afghanistan and do like a walking tour. And this is like during the, during the time that the Russians had invaded and the Mujahideen are fighting. So he like got in with like these Mujahideen fighters and like went around with them and all this kind of stuff. And then he goes back, I think it's 94, right as the Taliban are coming in and start, starting to take over um, and goes back and visits again. It's a it's a gorgeous book. It's really, really amazing. Um, and they, they, he talks about, you know, just that thing you said, the sense of going back in time. Yeah.
0: Well, did you – and you, you must have had to do a lot of research. I mean because you – I did a ton of research. You didn't serve in the military – uh, nope. I am I'm, I'm ta- I take it you didn't go to Afghanistan for like a field trip to
1: check. It no, out. no, I did not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did
0: not probably wise, but like, what did you interview like military guys and a lot of guys? Okay. Yeah. I,
1: I talked to, you know, former green berets. I talked to former army Rangers. I have a couple of friends. Um, I have a friend who is an ex CIA contractor and I have a friend who's a current CIA contractor. Um, and then I have you know uh, you know friends who are 82nd Airborne, uh, 509th Airborne, Marines. Friend is a Navy SEAL. Um, so I mean, they were they were very very generous in terms of like allowing me to like badger them well, with all these little details. Well, and,
0: that's the thing, though, is that like you write yep. a book, you write a book like this. Like that's the fear is that you'll fuck up the details. And write. I know. I mean, I know you have artistic license, but you don't want to render a world that's totally inaccurate. That's right. You know, where that's the, right. Totally unbelievable. But uh, do you feel like, you know, now that the things in your rearview mirror, do you feel like you got it mostly right?
1: You know, that's that's going to be that's going to be a question for. For like folks who read it and have served, I feel like, you know, I the guys that have read it that are veterans tell me that that they feel like it's authentic. Um, they, you know. I've, heard, I've had people say, well, you know, I don't know if he would have used that radio or I don't know if that would be hooked up that way. But, you know, um, the, actually, the the guy who wrote the publisher's weekly review uh, and gave me this great like starred and boxed review and everything. And he got in touch after he'd done it. And he did a like a and a with me. And he is a retired Marine colonel. <laughs> and he said, wow, you you know, you nailed this stuff. Like I I spent I don't know how many years in the military and. And this really, you know, resonated for me in terms of the realism.
0: Well, that had to make you feel good. I mean, just to, it, just oh, a star, just just start review alone. <laughs>
1: uh, well, no. And, and like having this guy who, you know, who didn't know me from Adam and, you know, had spent his life, you know, in the military uh, at a very high level. I mean, that that, that knocked me out you No. Know? Yeah. Be- so I. That's the thing about fiction writing for me that that if it's working, if you can tap into it, that you're able to. I mean, it's like ventriloquism, right? You're able to like to inhabit someone who's completely different from yourself.
0: And how many like and and for you with this book uh, in terms of like the long arc of its of its gestation? Uh, when did you feel like you finally got to that point? Like, were you, how many years did it take you to write it?
1: I. I did the actual writing over the course of three years.
0: Okay. So, Um, so different, different than the book that preceded it, that came out in nine months.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Um, and like you say, I mean, you, you go back to it and you think, man, if I would have taken another three months to develop this, or, I mean, you can, you can go back and kind of Rubik's cube the whole thing. Uh, and think about how this, you know, one thing could have been better developed or, or more fully developed. But, I, you know, I feel pleased with what is there, you know, I've, and I feel like I can walk away from it. I feel like it's finished. Good. Which is good since it's on bookstores, book right? Yeah, right?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, and you know, you don't want to live. I mean, I think like you learned your lesson though. And I think it's like, it's, it's uh, refreshing to hear, somebody talk honestly about that, you know, having put a book out and been like, yeah, you know what? I rushed that one because I think the impulse in uh, our culture so often, especially with, you know, you got a, a product out there for lack of a right. better word. Right. Um, is to never cop to that. You know, it's like, right. you always got to spin it positive and blah, blah, blah. And that, that sort of talk, um, you know, the consistency of that sort of talk makes me uneasy because I, right. I, I suspect, right. I suspect that it's bullshit. <laughs>
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, I think, I mean, there are artists out there. There are writers who you just think, oh my God, man, they're, they got a perfect game. Yeah. They're just, they're, they're freaking shooting scratch. But, uh, they, I mean, there, there are stories that I published that, that I feel like, I mean, I'm, I feel a real sense of pride having written them. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, you feel like you feel proud to be attached to it. And there are stories out there that I'm just like, why the fuck did I, say-? you know what I'm saying? And you're just like, I hope no one reads that, you know, picks up that journal. Um, and I think it's important, or it's at least to me, it's important to be honest about this kind of stuff because I think, I think you can learn from it, you can grow from it, you can, you can get better.
0: Well, and I think too, like if you publish enough stuff, like anybody, like you say there, there are people out there that are shooting scratch, but. Uh, I bet if you put them on sodium pentothal or hooked them up to a lie detector, you know, <laughs> right. he, even like Don DeLillo or somebody who seems like as bulletproof as that would tell right. you, you know, uh, and, and they might even might not even need that to tell you that, you know, this is the one I wish I had back or this is the one I don't feel I feel uneasy about or whatever. Right. You're never gonna, you know, you, you publish enough stuff, there's always gonna be something out there that I agree with that doesn't quite measure up. And and you know what? That's okay. That's right. That, that's okay. That's right. You can't. That's you mean, right. Nobody bats a thousand. So. Uh, before I let you go I want to ask you because this um this kind of story and you know this conceit seems like uh movie-ish to me. Like is this a has this book been optioned or anything?
1: Uh not yet, but there's there are some there's some stuff going on right now. So and you t- shouldn't say more than more than that, but Good yeah. st- good stuff. You excited? Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely.
0: You're not going to tell me who it is.
1: I can't right now. <laughs> <but>.
0: <laughs> Can I guess?
1: Uh Uh, no (laughs) i'm gonna get myself in trouble all
0: right i won't make you get you i won't make you i won't won't make you get yourself in trouble but i could see uh yeah i don't know i'm trying to i'm I'm scanning my brain for actors but like you know john ham on a horse or something there's
1: your there's your damn title (laughs) there you go men's war (laughs) john ham on a horse (laughs)
0: I feel like that, you know, I was thinking about him because he's got this new movie out, like just to completely go off on a, a tangent. But I was thinking, okay. about him. he's got this movie. It's a sports movie. It's sort of Disney-ish.
1: Oh, um, yeah. and that's yeah. fine.
0: But like, I feel like he needs to, uh, he needs to sort of be a, a more of an action hero.
1: Yeah. And he can do it, right? He's like,
0: uh, and, and it doesn't have to be like, it doesn't have to be like a uh,
1: cheesy action. I mean, no, so, no. yeah, yeah, I thought he was very, like, very believable and, uh, and like hilarious in the town right? Where he's that FBI guy.
0: Oh yeah. 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 The Ben Affleck movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's that's the other thing about him is that he's got comedic chops, which is like, totally. So he can, totally. do, he can do both. So I'm casting your movie for you basically. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> uh, listen, it's been really fun talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations on, uh, on the, on the new book and all the, the positive, uh, you know, reception that it's getting. Thanks and, so much. And best of luck with this top secret movie stuff.
1: I pre- <laughs> Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it.
0: Okay, guys. There you have it. That's Aaron Gwynn. Go get his novel. It's called Wins War. It's available now from Eamon Dolan Books. You can find Aaron online at aarongwynn.com. He's on the Facebook, and he's also on Twitter. His handle is at a Gwynn. At a gwyn with one N. Uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for... Uh, you, whatever device you have in your hand. It's available wherever apps are available. It's the best way to listen to this show. New episodes automatically upload to the app. Uh, you can download episodes to listen to offline, and you can also use the app to access the full archives of the show, in case you've been wondering about that. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. If you want to access everything else, just get the app. You do that, you can sign up for premium for a couple of bucks, or uh, like for a full year, it costs eight ninety nine. It's cheap. for a whole year. Then you have access to everything. So support the show. Go get the app. It's a good thing to do. The app itself is free. Uh, I feel, you know, I hope it's it's not wrong of me to tell you what's actually happening. I don't know what else to do. I'm like, uh, you know, two hours removed from a really shitty doctor's appointment at like this uh, fertility specialist's office. It's that kind of thing. And when you go through something like that and then suddenly you're sitting here in front of a microphone, what do you say? I'm not going to read like silly, you know. I guess I could be silly. I'm just uh, doing my best. I hope that that, that's uh, allowable. I hope you will permit me. (laughs) Uh, But I shall prevail. We shall prevail. I'm tough. You find that out when you take a lot of punches, right? You're tough. I'll get up off the mat. I'll come back next week. And uh, we will resume with normal programming. Please remember that Plato died at the age of 80 or 81 while attending a wedding and that Emily Dickinson died of Bright's disease. That's it for now. Thanks again to Aaron Gwynn. Go get his book. Thanks to you guys for listening and uh, for putting up with me. I appreciate it. Uh, And I will be back again soon, just a couple of days, with another conversation with another writerly human being. Someone related to the the storytelling arts, the narrative arts. You know the drill. Uh, Okay. I'm not going to punch anything either. I might punch something. I don't know what I'm going to do. Should I? I don't know what I should do. I don't know how to end this either. (laughs) Should I punch something on the air? Should I do that? Here, I'll punch my desk. Ow. Ow.